Sunday. So we're happy because it's football day, right? Us diehard football fans, we have our Sundays back. But it's also podcast day. And you guys know I get hyped up on podcast day because that means I'm bringing on another amazing guest. We're going to have a great conversation and hopefully we're going to inspire some, some people. We're going to educate you a little. We'll make you laugh a couple times and maybe even shock you once or twice. So if you are new to the show, if, you, if you're joining us on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. If you're joining us on Facebook, please like and share because spread the word. You know, if you watch, you must be getting some value out of it. So why keep that value all to yourself? And if you have no idea who I am, this is the point in the show where I introduce myself. I started doing workshops and doing groups where I'm getting up in front of of others, like outside of the gym setting and talking about resilience and perseverance and goal setting and vision and taking action. You should know what one hour of your time is worth. You should know the value that you bring to the marketplace. You know what your passion is. starts with clarity of vision. If you don't have the clarity of vision, whatever next thing you get, you're not going to see it through because you don't have the clarity of vision. So the, the point of my pain was being told you will never run or jump again. And all that stuff, I was like, you know what? Like, I want to be able to take this even bigger. If you know why you do what you do, you have to know how to charge for what you do. That's how you're going to change your life, and that's how you're going to leave a legacy for your children and your family. You've got to know your work. All right, so before I bring on my guest and we dive into the main topic, you know I started doing the teachable moment of the episode. So today's teachable moment is we're going to talk about being selfish. Because, again, being selfish has been vilified over the years because there's multiple meanings for it. And the one that's been vilified is where you're doing things for your own personal gain. Where selfish is necessary is for your personal development. Because too many times we're pouring into others and we're not pouring into ourselves. And so while you're helping others grow, you're staying the same. And then that doesn't that doesn't inspire you like that doesn't give you that internal fire to want to succeed. So when you focus on your personal development, when you you know developing new new skills, new talents, or just simply pursuing the things that make you happy, now the fire is burning internally, and then now you can really really uplift other people and inspire other people. So whenever you hear whenever you're taking care of yourself, and someone tells you that you're being selfish. Just say, yes, I am. Thank you for recognizing it. Because your health and your happiness will definitely influence everyone else around you and in your inner circle. So take care of yourself first so you can better take care of others. That's all I got for you for the for today's Teachable Moment. So now today we're going to be talking about caring for people with brain injuries. And there's various forms of brain injuries. And if you guys watch the show on a regular basis, you know, I talk about my sister a lot who suffered a brain aneurysm burst in 2016, 20% survival rate, so I'm told, and she's still here with us. Actually, this this month, it'll be six years, six years, 
five years. Yes, right. 2016. Yeah, so it'll be five years. Uh, September 22nd, I believe is the date. And every day, every day it's an uphill, uphill battle for her and for her husband and, and her children. So having today's conversation is definitely going to hit home because I'm sure my guest is going to touch on some things that I see that my sister's immediate family is dealing with. So who is this guest, you ask? And I don't have the right part of the bio. <laughs> I fail. See, this is the downside of doing live, live streams because then when you fail, you just have to own it. All right. So any which way... So, so many families are greatly impacted by this disease and are badly in need of help and guidance. This is how she has an impact on the world. Currently in the United States, there are almost 7 million people living with Alzheimer's disease. Today, someone in the U.S. develops Alzheimer's every 66 seconds. Based on that, by the middle of the century, someone in the U.S. will develop the disease every 33 seconds. And as many as 16 million people could be be affected with Alzheimer's in the U.S. by 2050 if a cure is not found. And this is according to the Alzheimer's Association. So to help us dissect all of that, please welcome Lisa Skinner to the show. Good morning. Good morning. How you doing? I'm doing just great. How are you? I'm always good. Always. <laughs> all right. So where are you joining us from? I am in Napa, California. Napa. All right. How, how's it going over there? It's an absolutely gorgeous day. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't had any fires here this year, but we have for the last several years. It went to, to almost burn Tahoe down this time, but yeah. Yeah. But, I heard. Uh, it was saved, so that's good news. <laughs> nice. Yes, yeah, like I'm big into Spartan races, and uh, Spartan does one out in Tahoe every year. And um, we just got word that, that it got postponed because of the threat of the fires over there. Yeah, it came very close to burning the entire South Lake area down, all the houses and the businesses, but it's a mess. It's a mess. Uh, it's, it is a beautiful state, though, I got to say. So I've been there. I've been to California several times, four, four times Southern. And then once I went to uh, Sacramento and San Francisco. So, oh, yeah. I like it out there. Well, uh, I was born in San Francisco. Oh, nice. Nice. It's like I, I went out to Sacramento for the track and field nationals with my son. And in Sacramento, it was 106 degrees. We drove to San Francisco. It was 51 <laughs> I was like, wow. That is a true illustration of Sacramento versus San Francisco. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> On any given day in the summer. <laughs> yeah, I was like, my, my son and I, we were the only ones in shorts and a t shirt. <laughs> like, we, we got out of the car, we're like, uh, it was like, it was blazing hot just an hour and a half ago. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what the heck happened? I hear that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you said you are, you're originally from San Francisco? I was born in San Francisco, but I grew up in, on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge in Marin County. Okay. All like Pasolito, right. Tiburon, that's mm. all part of Marin County. I personally grew up in Kentfield, but uh, it's all part of Marin County. Yeah. Okay. What, what was it like growing up there? Um, it was amazing. But when I grew up there, it was really considered a small bedroom community. It's not like that anymore. Yeah. 
My father actually was a prominent attorney in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And my parents both grew up in Marin County, so which is pretty rare. Yeah. And um, after my dad finished law school and started practicing, he stayed in San Francisco but wanted to go back to his roots. So they ended up moving back to from San Francisco to Marin, and that's where I grew up. And um, we had a wonderful childhood. And... Mm -hmm very fond memories. Um, and then it all kind of blew apart when my parents got a divorce. I was 11. Okay. And that really kind of uh, derailed me for a couple of years. I went through a rough patch, okay. but found my way again. All right. How, how so? Like how, how did that, how did that affect you? Cause I mean, I have a couple, well, I mean, I have five kids, but I know, especially with my daughters, Right around 10, 11 is when, you know, the hormones start shifting. You know, so, so like with that stuff happening at that period, like what did that, what did that do, do to you? Oh my gosh. It was like the worst possible time yeah. that, that could have happened <laughs> Yeah, because of my age. And I had been very close to my dad yeah. and it just, it was, um, it was a horrible experience to be honest with you. And it was a, a hostile situation and my dad remarried right away and so um you know i was going through that adolescent age where i was yeah. trying to figure out myself yeah. and had that um to deal with on top of it so it, it was it was there was a few tough years there yeah a few very I, tough years did, did, did that did that affect you in school or in your social circles at all oh yeah oh yeah yeah, how so? Well, I was lost. I was just lost. And it took a long time for me to kind of get back on the uh, on a on the right path. Okay. And that kind of happened um as a result of my grandmother getting Alzheimer's disease. Okay. That was my very first experience. And I how, was, how old were you then? I was, um, I think I was about 15 years old. Okay. And I had never, ever even heard of this. They didn't even call it Alzheimer's when she was diagnosed. They told her she had what they called senile dementia. Okay. And my grandma just lived a few miles from us. So we had a close relationship. And I would go over and visit her and she would be telling me the most unbelievable stories. Mm. For example, she tried to convince me that there were birds living in her mattress and they would come out at night and peck uh. at her face. And I even one day went and checked, I lifted up her mattress and I checked and I said, grandma, I don't see anything here. How could these birds be coming out? There's no hole. She goes, oh, they're very clever. They're very clever. And then she would tell me about the rats that would run along her wall at night. And she was calling the police every single day, reporting that people were trying to break into her house and yeah. kill her and steal her things. And... Anyway, long story short, it turns out she had Alzheimer's disease, which we 
realized years later. And the police even didn't really understand this disease. They got a hold of my mom and they they said, look, lady, you've got to do something with her. She's a nut. She calls this department every single day trying to get our officers over there. We don't have time for one person. You got to do something with her. And I, I was really incensed that they called my grandma nut because I, my grandma was a sweet little old lady. Yes. And I knew she wasn't a nut. There was something wrong with her. And as I learned later on in life by ending up making this my profession, she really displayed the gamut of the behaviors that show up with this disease. She had the paranoia. She had the hallucinations. She showed the delusions, the uh, outbursts. She had personality changes. A lot of these symptoms that we see and behaviors that we see as, that are actually part of this disease, my grandmother displayed. And not everybody does. It's well, well, before you move, move on, just like, just describe what is Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is a brain disease that affects the short-term memory. And most people relate Alzheimer's disease with memory loss and confusion, but it's actually much, much more than that. Yes. And it is true that the part of the brain that is first impacted with Alzheimer's disease is the short-term memory. And we see a lot of uh, cognitive decline in that area. But uh, what a lot of people don't know is it also attacks other areas of the brain. So other behaviors and other symptoms show up. But also people can have what we call mixed dementia. And this is when somebody has more than one brain disease attacking different parts of the brain at the same time. So in other words, somebody could have Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal lobe disease or Lewy body disease at the exact same time. So it's really difficult because there is no definitive um, diagnosis for Alzheimer's disease yeah. uh, yet. The only way that they can really, really pinpoint it is after the person passes away and they do an autopsy and see the plaques and tangles in the brain. So through process of elimination and testing for other brain diseases, and by the way, there are over a hundred brain diseases that cause dementia. Okay. So Alzheimer's is a brain disease. Parkinson's is a brain disease. Lewy body is a brain disease. That's the one that Robin Williams was diagnosed with. Okay. Frontotemporal lobe is a brain disease. But I also use um, the, the term dementia. But when dementia's, the difference is dementia is not an actual disease. The other ones that I just mentioned are the disease. Dementia is an umbrella term, a, 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 an umbrella term, a broadly used term to describe the symptoms 
that accompany a brain disease. Okay. And there are hundreds of those. Yeah. So let me um, kind of put this in perspective for everybody. Almost everybody's experienced either having a cold or a flu at some point in their life. Yeah. You might go to the doctor and tell the doctor, what's wrong with you? Oh, I have a fever and I, my body aches from head to toe and I have the chills and my stomach is really upset. Well, what you just described to your doctor were your symptoms, the way you were feeling, what you're yes. experiencing. This is what dementia refers to. The, all the symptoms and the signs that the person is experiencing as a result of the disease. Yes. So when we are used the term dementia, we're really referring to the symptomology and um, what the person experiences. And like I said, there's over a hundred of these. And the thing that's really interesting about brain disease is no two people experience it the same way. Yes. My grandmother had the extreme behaviors, but other people don't have hallucinations or don't have um, delusions. So this is all part of the bucket of dementia are the symptoms that accompany a brain disease as it's damaging the brain. So back to your original question about what is Alzheimer's, yes. its hallmark is damaging the short-term memory. Okay. So most people with Alzheimer's disease the short-term memory, as they're progressing through the stages of the disease, that short-term memory shuts off sometimes and then flips back on sometimes, kind of like a light switch. Yes. In the beginning or the earlier stages of the disease, your short-term memory is functioning normally more than it's shut off. Okay. In the mid part of the disease, the middle stages, beyond it's on and off on and off on and off kind of half and half and then by the end of the disease that short-term memory is pretty much gone erased and what happens to people because the long-term memory stays intact for the duration of the disease if their short-term memory is basically erased they're pulling from their long-term memories. Gotcha. And, but they're not only pulling from the long-term memory, they're living in yes. the past at whatever point. And that's different for everybody. I've seen people um, revert back to being childlike and their memories are from their childhood and they think their mother is at home and they mm -hmm. think they're in first grade and they talk to their relatives and call them by their friends' names because that's the reality of the period of time they're living in. I've seen people revert back to adolescence. My mother-in-law had Alzheimer's disease and when her short-term memory flipped off, she was back um, in eighth grade and talking about playing tennis doubles with these two other kids and her brother. I've seen people revert back to their 20s or their 30s. So 
The period of time that people flip back to once their short-term memory is completely gone, or even as it's on and off, on and off, on and off, is different for everybody. And what I tell people is listen for the cues. Listen for what they're calling you, what they're talking about, and then you can pinpoint exactly what period of time their reality is in at that time. Gotcha. All right, let's let's take it back to your teens. So you, your grandmother has this disease, and just take me through what what you went through, what you and your fa family went through. I probably visited her more than anybody else, and of course, I was raised um, kind of in a traditional family value. A setting. And okay. I was taught you don't contradict your elders, you respect your elders. And when my grandmother would tell me about um, the men that were stealing her jewelry or the rats running along the wall or, or the birds living in her mattress, because I had been raised not to contradict my elders. I didn't want to say, oh, grandma, that's ridiculous. That can't be true. Do you, do you have any idea what you're saying sounds like? It's just too bizarre. I would go along with her story. Yeah. And unbeknownst to me, later in years when I um, got a college degree in human behavior and then uh, became um, a counselor for people with Alzheimer's disease and, and related dementia, I learned that that was actually the correct way to respond to a false belief. And I didn't know if I was, you know, I, I reflected back on my relationship with my grandmother and I just intuitively responded like that because of being afraid to contradict my grandmother out of respect because that's what I was taught. But as it turns out, because that's a counterintuitive response. Most people, and I've seen this for the last 25 plus years, they want to correct the person and they want to steer them back into their reality and to be quite Frank with you, that's an impossible thing to do with somebody with Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. Because the short-term memory is either off temporarily or it's gone. So they, yes, they do live in a different reality, but it doesn't matter what you say or how much you try to correct them or get them to remember things that are aligned with your reality their brain's not working that way anymore and they can't. See, and that's, that was the point of my, my client, who, who, the, the one that works in a nursing home. Because she said, you know, obviously the other nurses know what to do, but when the family members come to visit, that sometimes they're very, very harsh on them. You know, and it's just because of that right there. Like people don't understand, yes, you're operating at your full capacity, but the person going through the trauma, they are not operating at full capacity. And it's like, it's not up to you to get them to. Like, that's what people have to understand. You know, like, even with my sister, 
you know, there, there. I mean, there are times with her where she definitely gets in her head because, like, she's mad that the accident happened, and because she was a very, very, very independent woman, you know. And so, and now she needs a lot of help, and so, so I know it definitely hurts her soul to have to need that help. But like, with you know, we have a fine balance of her doing things on her own and us providing assistance. But just, but just there were some people, like, we even saw it when we were going to visit her, like, other people, because we were in the brain injury ward. Whatever, I'm sure there's a name for it, but... And, uh, but, like, we could see it with some of the other families where people were just, like, brutal, you know? And, like, that's one thing that my client wanted to get, to get more information out. So to help the people who are... To help the actual patients from their own family. Everything you just described that the lady who works in the nursing home is so true. And it's been probably the main struggle for me for the past 25 years. And since my grandmother's experience, I've had seven other family members subjected uh, or succumb to uh, a brain disease. And there's a variety of different ones involved. five of them are blood relatives and three of them were through marriage. So I've walked these shoes from the family and the caregiver perspective, but I also um, made this my profession. But the reason why I, I didn't choose this as a profession. I stumbled into it. Yes. Um, I followed the yellow brick road because after I got my degree in human behavior, which I wasn't planning on doing my, my childhood dream was to be a veterinarian because I just love animals. But when I went to college, I took a class in human behavior and I was so fascinated by the topic Mm -hmm. because of the, experience I had with my parents' divorce and seeing some of the things my dad did and and the way he handled things. And it just was fascinating to me. What makes people behave the way they do? What, what, what are the triggers? What are the um, kind of the, the circumstances behind why somebody would behave the way they did, they do. So, I went ahead and got my degree in human behavior because I wanted to really wanted to um, be an expert in what makes people tick. And I guess I thought I was probably going to be a counselor um, on this topic. But one of the very first jobs I got was I answered a little small ad for a community counselor at an assisted living facility and a memory care facility. So it was uh, people who needed help with activities of daily living, the elderly, and also people with dementia. And that's really the path that led me to making this my career and my profession. Because just like the gal who works in the, the nursing home said, families don't have their heads completely wrapped around what it's really like on a day-to-day basis to live with this disease. And all of these really strange and unique behaviors show up. 
that personalities change, people lose their cognitive abilities like for reasoning and for sound judgment. They think it's just losing your memory and it's not. It's so much more layered than that. And I discovered over the years that if I could help these family members and caregivers really have a better understanding of the disease and then also a better understanding of how to effectively react and respond to these behaviors, mm -hmm. then they could get back to what really matters, which is spending quality time with their loved one or caring for a person <clears throat> who has the disease and knowing how to handle these obstacles that show up on a daily basis. Yes. And that's kind of how I ended up where I having a career in this. Yes. And then I, um, I was a regional director. I managed five buildings. I set up, um, memory care units, I tr wrote training manuals, I trained caregivers, um, I then started my own business, counseling families, helping them have a better time with this. I've run um, support groups at memory care units um, to help families have a better understanding and, and a, a easier time to, to cope with this. And then I wrote a book and the book ended up being a, a two times bestseller and also won um, a really amazing award as one of the most inspirational books written uh, in the year that I entered the book. Nice. So um, I have really kind of dedicated my life to helping people have an easier time going through this because it is a long disease. My grandmother lived with it for 20 years. That's a long time, but because the average is eight to 15, but still eight to 15 years is a long time for somebody to care for somebody with um, who can't, who will eventually not be able to do anything for themselves. And then just the day-to-day -day challenges that that pop up, um, the different personalities you see, the different behaviors, the inability for the person with the disease to communicate to you what their wants and needs are. And a lot of um, the behaviors that we see with this disease are their way of communicating with us because they can't articulate their wants and needs. So it shows up in it manifests in other types of behaviors. And so I teach people about that, how to, to learn to recognize these behaviors and that they are part of the disease. And then after you recognize a behavior, realize that they're probably trying to tell you something. And then you have to decode the behavior and figure out what that something is. And this is not an easy task. Yeah. That sounds like becoming a parent again. Yes, that's exactly right. Because yeah. when you think about it, when we have our babies, 
we have to put our Sherlock Holmes hats on and figure out why is my baby crying? Yep. Are they are hungry? They no. Are they wet? Oh. No. <laughs> Do I have to change? No. <laughs> He's just going down the list. They don't have a fever. <laughs> so, exactly. Absolutely. Well, crying is a baby's way of communicating a want or a need to their mom or dad. Yeah. The behaviors that we see with people with Alzheimer's disease and other brain diseases that cause dementia are their way of trying to tell us that there's a want or a need. And we have to figure out what that is because they can't tell us. So what are, so what are the the like early warning signs? Well, this is a tough question because most people are not diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease until they're already into their mid stages. Okay. They could be living with the disease for years before they progress into the mid stage and then the signs are so obvious that somebody takes them to the doctor and they get a diagnosis. And the reason why is because we are, it's very, very difficult to discern the difference between what happens to us as a result of the normal aging process we all lose our keys. We all forget that our glasses are on top of our head. <laughs> Why did I go downstairs? Exactly. exactly. Yep. Well, these are some of the beginning signs of dementia, but they're so subtle in the beginning of the disease that they could be mistaken for natural aging. Yes. And it happens to all of us. I mean, the older I get, I, sometimes I, I, um, names seem to fly out of my head mm. and you know, that happens to a lot of people when they're aging and that's perfectly normal. And I have people ask me all the time, Oh, you know, the other day I couldn't find my keys and now I'm really worried that maybe I'm getting Alzheimer's disease mm. and people worry about that when they start to realize that their their memories just aren't as sharp as they were when they were younger. So let me give you a good um, analogy for that. If you lose your keys because you just put them someplace and you couldn't remember, or like you said, Robert, why did I well, just come into this room? That's not necessarily a red flag that you're developing dementia or have a brain disease that's causing dementia. Yeah. If you misplaced your keys and then found them again and could not remember, you didn't know what you're supposed to do with those keys, that they actually, their purpose was to start your car because you wanted to go to the store. Now that's a different situation not knowing the function of something because that's part of the disease. People lose their ability. They lose their ability to task sequence later on in the, so if, if that's something that you're starting to notice about your loved one is they can't figure out how to brush their teeth in the morning because it's all become second nature to us. We take our toothbrush out of our holders 
and then we run it under water for a couple seconds and then we apply the toothpaste and everything is in a, a, a set of sequential steps. If you can't remember what those steps are for anything, how to operate your microwave or your coffee maker or run your dishwasher or even the order that you usually put your clothes on, these are all signs of brain disease when you can no longer put a, a sequence of a task together the way they're supposed to go. See, and talking about awareness, because for, for those of us that don't know, we're just like, hey, you got that Alzheimer's kicking in. You know, like it's a it's it's almost a joke for us because like we don't really know the the seriousness of it. You know, it's like we just know people that get it, they can't remember anything. You know, like they, they forget who they are, they forget who they're talking to. Like, yeah, it's just a si sign of aging. It's like, what, what would you say to, to those people about how serious this disease is? When the memory loss starts interfering with your daily activities, then that's a sign that there might be something more serious going on not just forgetting where you put your keys or forgetting your uh, doctor's phone number that you've had in your head for 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's when it really starts to have an impact on your ability to live your life um, safely or productively. Yeah. You can't remember how to balance your checkbook or Another thing that, that happens to people is they lose their ability to reason and for sound judgment. So one of the examples I talk about is when we're children, we're all taught when we uh, get to a, a crosswalk or a, a curb, before we set one foot off that curb, we stop and we look both ways to make sure a car is not coming. Even if the light is in our favor, if it's green, yeah. I still <laughs> look both look. ways. Yes. <laughs> Somebody that is in their probably about the mid stages of dementia or later, they would just walk right off that curb. They would not have the presence of mind or the reasoning perception or ability to stop make sure the light is green, and also look both ways to make sure that somebody's not running that light. They don't have the capacity to do that anymore. So it's a very dangerous world out there for people with dementia because they don't have that same ability to use sound judgment and reasoning that they did when their brains were healthier. And I'll tell you one of the things my grandmother did uh, one day she was living by herself. This is before we moved her into a care home. And she decided to go to the store to get herself some groceries. And she got in her car and she headed towards the grocery store that she always went to. And she believed in her mind that she had arrived in the parking lot. She was actually on a four lane road to one direction and to the other direction and stopped in the middle of it wow. and got out of her car and was looking around for the store. I mean, how dangerous is that? Not I hear easy. these stories all the time from people, from family members who have loved ones with dementia, 
working in the industry for over 25 years. These are all some of the things that occur. People getting lost. People get lost all the time. Um, so, yeah, these are just some of the, the situations that we see with people with dementia. And it can be very a very dangerous situation. So what's one of your biggest pieces of advice to give someone who's caring for a loved one that has it? Well, just like you had mentioned with the gal who was a guest on your show that lives in the nursing home, and when you told the story of the family members getting frustrated and angry because they're trying to correct their loved one when they have a false belief, not the caregivers, they're trained, and you said they're trained how to deal with it. Yes. That's my number one piece of advice. Recognize the behaviors as part of the disease, that they are trying to communicate something to you, decode what the communication is, and then know how to, how to effectively respond and react to that. And if you have your loved one in the hands of professional care, hopefully they are trained. Taking care of somebody with Alzheimer's disease and dementia requires very, very specialized skills Yes, because those reactions and those responses are actually counterintuitive to the way we just want to instinctively react because that instinctive reaction is to correct them, to try to steer them back into our reality, not yeah. their reality. And that doesn't work. Yeah. So just like the gal in the nursing home said that her caregivers know how to respond to that because they've been trained. So this is kind of what I've dedicated my life to is raising awareness about this disease and providing family members and caregivers with the tools to be able to effectively manage this disease. Otherwise, it's just always going to be, I mean, I've had family members tell me for years, I don't, I'm very uncomfortable going to visit my mom or my dad in the memory care unit because I never know what's going to come out of their mouth. I never know how to react to it. It's just so stressful. But what I tell people, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. You can have a really nice relationship with your loved one in spite of this disease if you have the right tools and you have the right training and you have the right knowledge and you learn a new language, which is the language of how to communicate to somebody that has brain disease. Yes. So another thing that she brought up was about newer caregivers like freshly certified or freshly graduated caregivers that she feels that they need a little more training because, you know, in, in anything there's levels, you know? So like if you get a brand new personal trainer and then someone like me, who's been doing it for 15 years now, you know, like there's just two different levels in, in experience there. So she feels now, obviously she works in one place, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of nursing homes across the country. So just in your experience, 
what have you seen as far as people new coming into the field? Do you feel that they're properly trained enough to handle working with these patients? Um, no. And I have trained caregivers before. In the state of California, now every nursing home and every assisted living facility and every memory care facility are governed by their own state's regulations. Yeah. And they're different in every state. So I can answer that question for the state of California because okay. that's the one that I'm most familiar with. Being a caregiver in one of those facilities, they are certified. And in order to keep up their license, they have to complete so many hours of additional training every year. So it is definitely a process. Yeah. You train caregivers initially and get them out on the floor, but between additional training and day-to-day -day experience, which is the best training anybody can get because you're in the weeds, you're <laughs> hands on, boots on the ground, you're doing it. I mean, I've been doing this for over 25 years, not including my grandmother's experience. That dates back 40 something years ago. Wow. Um, it is an ongoing process because every day there's a new challenge. There's a new thing. Something comes up that you didn't experience before. You didn't see before. You have, you don't know how to handle it. So it, it definitely is a skill that comes with not only education and training, but doing. And it's a long process because this disease is so complicated and you never, it's kind of like a box of chocolates. You never know <laughs> what you're going to get. Exactly. So you bite into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, what's this one? Yay, caramel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So what inspired you to write your book? Well, that's kind of a unique story. You want me to tell you? <laughs> of course. Why okay. <laughs> so, the, so it happened while I had my counseling business. And I not only counseled families on, you know, what to look for, the behaviors, how to respond, how to react. But I also helped families place their loved ones into the proper care homes okay. based on what their loved ones uh, stage of their disease was at the time. So I would help them place them. Yeah. I was called over to a client's house one day. She got my name from some another family that I had helped place their loved one. And she said, could you come over? Because my husband and I want to just ask you some questions. We want to do some due diligence and some research. I said, okay. So I went over to their house. This is this was their situation. Her father had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Okay. Now people with Parkinson's disease can have dementia or they can go through the disease without the dementia component of it. Like Michael J. Fox. Yes. He's been dealing with Parkinson's disease, I think for 30 years That's and he does not have the dementia. He's yeah. as sharp as a tack. But other people suffer from dementia with Parkinson's disease. It's just really depends on how it's damaging the brain. Okay. So the father had Parkinson's disease and the mother-in-law, her husband's mother, 
was diagnosed with Alzheimer's about the same time and we're going back about a year and a half. And they were at their wits end. They didn't know what resources were available to them. They didn't know how to move forward with this disease. They didn't know what to expect. So I sat there and I answered their questions for about two and a half hours. And then the wife stopped me and she said, Lisa, I just want to tell you that you have provided us with more valuable and helpful information in the last two and a half hours than we've been able to get anywhere else, including our doctor, for the last year and a half. And she said, you need to write a book. People are desperate for this information and you, you, you have to share. Yes. People are desperate there. You know, this is a, a hard, tough thing to go through. And I've been actually hearing this for years from people because I yes. counseled thousands of families yeah. and ran support groups. And but for some reason, the way she said it to me, almost like pleading with me yes. to share what I know, because people were desperate for the information was kind of my aha moment. And it was shortly after that, I wrote the book. I spent like the next year writing the book because I knew she was right. It was just a matter of sitting down and doing it. And the way she presented that to me that day was, was the little nudge I needed um, because I knew she was right. I had been hearing this for years. And that's really kind of what my nudge was to actually sit down and write the book. Yeah, so I just have to emphasize something that that you just said because the whole the whole premise of this show is about it's about overcoming obstacles, you know, defying the odds, but also pursuing your dreams. And one thing that I help people with is trying to pivot into something that they're passionate about. And I, I constantly say, you don't have to find something new. It's like whatever it is you want to do, it's already inside you. You just you just have to pull it out and figure out what parts of it you want to share. But just like you just said, that, like that woman said to you, share what you know. That's, that's all you have to do. Everybody out there is skilled at something. And they don't even realize that you can take it to a bigger scale, whether it's do, doing a podcast, whether it's writing a book, whether it's doing TV appearances. Like there's something that you have inside of you already that is very valuable to the world. Well, and then kind of to piggyback on what you said in your introduction about being selfish. Yes. When she said it to me and she said it to me that way, I almost felt like I was, was being selfish by not sharing the yes. information because I knew that there's very limited information on this topic on the day-to-day -day challenges that people face. Yes. You know, you can go to neurologists, you can go to, um, your doctor, they can give you the medical terminology, but to actually help you understand what you can expect on a day-to-day -day basis from a psychosocial perspective, yes. that's a different situation. And that's what most people struggle with. And that's what I learned um, from my own family experiences and also doing this as a profession. Um, and, and, and what puts you a step ahead, sorry to cut you off, but, but, no, what puts, but what puts you a step ahead is that you lived it when you didn't have to. 
You know, like it's, it's one thing if you go to school and you get the degree and you, you enter into the field. It's like, yes, you're, you're surrounded by it, but you have to be. Like, that's your profession. It's like you went through it as a teenager with someone you loved. So, like, that, like, that experience for you was a completely different level. So when you're counseling families, you actually can speak from the heart and not just from the brain. And what people don't understand, that matters. That matters a lot. Like, for me, I'm an athlete. So my old primary care doctor... He would just tell, well, well, you got to stop running. You know, you're getting older. You, you should just stop playing basketball. I'm like, dude, I'm an athlete. <laughs> I was like, I need someone who understands athletes. So I had to let him go. And I got a sports physician that also does primary care. So, so now he understands my need to compete. <laughs> you know, so like someone who doesn't, they're just going to give me what their experience is. And that's what they're going to go with. But I need someone who is also an athlete who happens to know medicine, <laughs> you know? And so, so now I can bond with, with, with him and he, when I'm talking to him, he gets it. So, so like, and with, with that, that woman urging you to write that book, cause she knows that you've seen the stages in someone you love, not just someone that you're working for. Well, I also, I mentioned that I've had eight of my own family members with the, uh one of the brain diseases that caused dementia. And I've also had the experience of being a part-time caregiver because I helped take care of my mother-in-law when she had it. And what you're saying is 100% true. And I I really agree with everything you're saying. And I think it has made a difference in my career because I know exactly what they're going through. And I think that between my education my 25 years of experience as a professional and my experience with my own family members, I think really gave me what I'll call a knack for being able to relate to the people I help and for them to be able to relate to what I'm saying to them because I know what they're going through. I I have found very unique ways to explain things to people so they'll be able to connect the dots. And I think that that has um, become a powerful um, tool for me. And it's unique. I mean, how many people have had eight family members suffer from (laughs) from dementia? Maybe one or they know somebody or their grandmother had it. But I've lived this. I've worked it. I've trained it. So I think that really has helped in um, my ability to kind of crack the code for people, so to speak. Well, it's all about relatability. It's like, yes, yes, education is important, but relatability is is the icing on the cake. Because I work with I've worked with thousands of women over the years between the gym, working in restaurants, and I've worked with hundreds of pregnant women. Like, I can tell you every stage of pregnancy, what stage you're in, what you're going to feel. I can, right? All the way through childbirth. But I've never felt it. Know what I mean? So, like, I haven't felt the kicks. That's I haven't a great felt example. The, right? I haven't felt the flutters. I haven't felt the pains of labor. I haven't felt contractions. So, even though I can sit there and tell someone, yes, in the second trimester, you're going to X, Y, Z. But to have someone else go through and take you through the feeling that's a connection on a whole different level 
You know, so like I have the knowledge to tell you what, what you're going to go through, but you're better to tell them. I'm assuming you're a mom. You're better to tell them because you've lived it. Like you've felt it. You've experienced it. So that's the difference between education and but being educated, but can relate to your audience. That's a perfect example. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it is so true. You can understand it in your heart, but in, you know, your reality, you can't because it's an impossibility so far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a, a perfect, perfect example. And that's that's what um, hopefully I bring to the table for people is knowing exactly what they're going through. Don't, don't sell you. Don't try to be all humble with the hopefully. <laughs> you, you know you can. That's what you bring to the table. Like, that's what sets you apart from the people who are just educated. It's like, you're educated and you live there. It's like, don't, that's that's not, that's where you step into your power. See, see up above us, your true power lies in your story. That's part of your power. Yeah. You know what I mean? Step I mean, into that. Like when, when people come to me and I say, hopefully I can help you lose, lose weight. Th does that make you want to sign up? Hell no. Be like, listen, I know what your family is going through. I lived every inch of it with my grandmother and seven other family members. Let's get to work and we'll help you through through this whole ordeal. I'd be like, all right, sign me up. <laughs> you know, sign me up. And I think that when that client said that to me that day, it had such a profound impact on me. It was my certification. It was my validation. And I really didn't know it. Yes. But the way she said it to me yes. changed every changed my direction, changed my path, changed yep. my mission, changed my um, just what I knew I had to, to do to help other families do this, go through this. Yes. And when I was first getting started into fitness, I, I was training in my garage. And I didn't even have a nice garage. It was dirty. The windows were busted out. <laughs> you know, but, but like I cleaned it up. I had some some equipment in there, but I knew I was good at connecting with people. Like that was that was my superpower. I could get people to believe in themselves. It's like, see that brick wall over there? Give me 30 days, I'll have you running right through it. And people would buy it, they'd buy right in. Like, all right, I'm I'm in, I'm in. And so this one woman comes to me with my my payment for the month. She's like, before I give you this check. She's like, I just want you to know that a brand new state-of-the-art Planet Fitness just opened two minutes from my house. She's like, but I'm getting ready to pay you five times the amount. She says, because you believed in me. And more importantly, you taught me to believe in myself. And, and I, at that moment, it, it became far bigger than just helping people lose weight or helping people gain muscle. I was like, I helped her believe in herself. It's like, wow. No, because like at the time I really wasn't into the mental side of it. I was more into the physical. This is going back 10, 10 years ago. So I was just getting my feet wet into it. And then now I focus more on the mental changes. Because then once your mind is right, then the body will follow. Yes. You know, the body will follow and then you'll be more apt to sustain it. Right. Versus if you just go in and you, you just think I need to lose weight, needs to lose, lose weight, you'll lose weight. You'll go back to everyday life. I'll see you six months later with the weight back on plus 10 pounds. You know, so it's like getting that mind right first. And I think how that relates to what you're doing is working with, with the families. It's like step back and don't say what's happening to me. Because I think that's where it goes wrong. Like, you know, my, my father passed in 2019. And when we were going through his stages of heart failure, 
know, he, his body was just deteriorating, you know, and so and he did not want to go into a nursing home, but he had to. So I, I kind of, I mean, we, we all, we all helped, but he tends to listen to me for whatever reason. And, and I, I'm his youngest child. And so, you know, I convinced him to go and I said, just for a couple of weeks, just physical therapy, so we can get you stronger, you know, so you can get back home. But I stopped in to see him this one day and my mom had come outside as I was pulling in and she was, she was hot under the car, like she's a Scorpio, you know. Scorpio's a fire, right? <laughs> and so, so she was hot under the car, like, and I guess she she went to cut his pot roast, and he like snapped at her, you know. And so I said, "Mom, I was like, breathe." I said, "Breathe." I said, "You know, like you guys been married fifty two years." <laughs> I was like, "You know this man, like you know him." I said, "You have to make it sound like it's his idea." It's like you know this already going in, <laughs> you know. So, so I was like, all you had to had to do is say, "Would you like me to cut your steak?" And then let him say yes. I said, but because you went over and did it, I said, "You're gonna think like a man." We're thinking she doesn't think I can do it myself, you know. So it's like it's like you have to know your audience, and so I think working with the families of of the you know people dealing with brain injuries and brain diseases. I think that's that's huge in educating them to like step back for a second and be like, how can I how can I make things better for them versus, oh, I have to do this. I have to like it's not about you right now. Somebody needs you, you know, and they need the best version of you. And what you're saying is so accurate, because one of the things that I teach is you can actually turn your loved one into an invalid by doing too much for them because you think you have to, or you think you need to, but helping somebody preserve their independence at whatever level they're still capable of doing yes. is critical to their quality of life. And there's a balance of yes. what you can help them with and what they are still able to do. You take that still able to do away from them, they will decline faster. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Like, and, and I really think that's what ultimately led to my dad's passing because he, he always told us once he can't build anymore, that's when his time is going to be up. And he almost called it to a T. <laughs> he really did. Last thing he did before he went to the hospital was he, he, he and my son, my son's a mechanic too. Uh, he and my son fixed my mom's car. And then he went to the hospital to, to, to get the procedure, you know, slipped into a coma. And then, you know, we, we ultimately had, had to end care. But it's like the very last thing he did was working with his hands, you know. And so, like, it, it would have been worse for him had he survived because he would have just slowly deteriorated. You know, like he didn't want that for himself. We didn't want that for him, you know, so it, it, it worked out well. But you're absolutely right. It's like you, you can't just assume that people can't do stuff. Right. Like, like even with uh, my sister, she'll, she'll be like, you know, get that for me. I was like, you can walk. You know, she's like, oh, but then I got to get out of the chair and then I got to get the cane. I said, okay, do what you got to do. <laughs> it's like, if you want to heal, I said, if, if we keep doing everything for you, you're not going to heal. You know, it's like, it's like, if it's something, is it a monumental task? And yes, you know, we'll do it for, but just the, the smaller things, you gotta, you gotta slowly let them get that independence back. That's right. That's right. And 
you know, it's part of our human psyche and part of our human nature to feel that we do have some purpose and that purpose is different for everybody, but everybody needs to feel that they have a purpose, whatever that is for each individual. Even people with Alzheimer's and dementia, I have seen um, that's one of the critical components to the quality of a person's life is that they still have some purpose and our jobs are to help them find that purpose and there are many ways to do that when that's not that's a different conversation mm-hmm. but um, we definitely need to help our loved ones find their purpose uh, their remaining purpose because if they don't have one no matter what it is how minute or insignificant it is they'll give up they'll decline yeah. they'll, they'll want to just wither away so that's another part of our job as um, loved ones and caregivers is to help people find um, a purpose and and a meaning for their life even though they're cognitively impaired they, yeah. they still have purpose we need to help them find what that is. Absolutely. I'm going to say one one last thing that, that I'm going to give you the final thoughts and then, then we'll break it down is I, I use that same mentality in dealing with people with injuries, you know, because like someone will come, Rob, I hurt, I hurt my wrist. The doctor said I can't work out for six, six weeks. I said, oh, okay, you hurt your wrist. What's that got to do with the rest of your body? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, that means we can't work your wrist for six weeks. So that's got nothing to do with everything else. Like we can take an ankle weight, wrap it around your forearm, and you can still do other things that don't impact the wrist. Or you I can, love the way you think. Yes, yeah, like <laughs> you can still run. You can still do lunges and squats. Like you can do ab work. You know what I mean? You can go hiking. Like there's so many things you like. There's no reason for you to sit down, gain weight, and have muscle atrophy because you hurt one part of your body. Like, <laughs> I've had seven surgeries, and, and again, and that's something I can talk about from experience. I went through it. I went through three knee surgeries, elbow surgery, shoulder surgery, and I donated a kidney. You know what I mean? So it's like, so I had my abdomen cut open. You know, so it's like I've lived through this stuff. Like, just because one part of you is impaired doesn't mean the rest of it can go to hell. You know, so that's the like the same scenario with what what you're saying. Yeah, so just because someone's deteriorating in one area, that doesn't mean they can't do something completely different. No, you'll you'll be surprised. Maybe give them a you know a sketch pad, pad and a piece of paper, and they might start drawing things they've never drew before. You know, it's like, it's like you don't know until you give them the opportunity to shine. It's like you just can't completely turn off some somebody's somebody's. Uh, I call it the badass switch. You know, it's like you can't shut off the badass switch just because one part needs work. You know, it's like you just have to pivot and shine in a completely different area. And then that helps keep them motivated. That, that keeps them feeling involved. Because, like, nobody wants to feel like a useless slug. You know, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure w- women feel it, too. But for men, that's devastating to us. Because, like, we're, we're wired to, to protect. We're wired to provide and care for and just, you know, be the men of our households. And, I, right. don't, and I don't care if that's frowned upon nowadays in society. That's how we're wired. So right. like, I was trying to explain that to my mom. I was like, you know what a manly man dad is. And the fact that you have to wait on him and help him bathe and help him get dressed. It's like, that's hurting his soul. 
It's like, I'm telling you, as I realize I'm your son, but I'm talking to you as a man. Like, like it's hurting his soul that he can't do this stuff himself. You know? Yes. So, so you totally. gotta just step, step back and just recognize that and give him other areas where he can shine. You know, so that way it'll offset the fact that he can't pull his own pants up. Well said. It's brilliant. Yes, well said. And it's exactly, you know, it's just like with your clients, it's exactly the same with people with dementia. And I can't emphasize this enough because a lot of people uh, get the false impression that because they're suffering from cognitive impairment and they lose their ability to do a lot of things that these other things don't matter anymore, but they do. So life, it's our lifeblood. Yes, I love it. Absolutely love it. All right, so how can people get in touch with you? Um, probably the best way is through my blog. Okay. My book is available on Amazon, Not All Who Wander Need Be Lost. And then I have a Facebook blog under the same title, Not All Who Wander Need Be Lost. And the reason why I like to refer people to that is because I post a lot of the information that we have been talking about for the last hour plus on this blog. It's a resource for people who have loved ones and um, caring for people with Alzheimer's disease and other related dementia. A lot of this information is posted on there as a resource to help people have uh, easier time getting through this. All right. Awesome. Lisa, this was very, very informative. I learned a lot. Okay. <laughs> no, I like, think too. <laughs> <laughs> About um, your area of expertise. That's awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show today. This has been such a pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll uh, gladly have you on again too down, down the line. You know, we'll catch up with you and uh, See if, see if there's any updates going on. And I'm going to co to connect you with some some other of my podcast friends. So you get we can help further, well, further spread the word. My well, we we haven't even hit the tip of the iceberg. We oh, can I talk know. about this forever in a day. So lots lots to, to talk about. Um yes. thank you again. My pleasure. All right, take care. Have a great day. You too. You too. All right, bye. Bye bye. All right. This is a very, very informative episode. So, and see, and we can take any topic and we can have fun with it. We, we're still being educational. We're still being mo motivational. We get into the seriousness of the topic. And sometimes these shows fly by on my end anyway. I mean, like an hour and 10 minutes, it felt like 20. <laughs> you know, so anyway, that's the premise of this show is we, we take whatever topic like it doesn't it really doesn't matter what the topic is even though i might be a fitness guy but that's not all i do I'm, i tell i tell people i'm a personal development guy and i use fitness as the vehicle right so fitness is the platform but i try to help people just expand their way of thinking learn new things i told you i learned a lot i have a whole notebook full of notes here because i was that guy that that would just make fun, fun of my mom forgetting something say oh that that, that alzheimer's kicking in you know and then after today's episode it's like okay like this is this is really serious you know so having lisa on sharing her story sharing her experiences it did a lot to open up my eyes and raise my awareness so hopefully it does that 
for you all as well. I will see you guys on uh, ooh, tomorrow with Miss Olivia. We're bringing back our debate show, my lovely daughter. Where is she? Right there. So we'll be discussing critical race theory in schools. So I'll be giving my Generation X opinion. She'll be giving her Generation Z opinion. And we're going to have a really good conversation. All right. So have yourselves a great rest of your Sunday. Take care. You've been listening to Shut Up and Grind. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. Robert has over 20 years experience pouring his knowledge and expertise at many events in the service and fitness industry, as well as secondary schools and universities. He has a true passion for helping.